0: There's four uh, images up there. Maybe you saw those last week and thought, what are those? Is that a thing that you put gas in? Is that a flashlight? I, I, don't, I don't, don't understand. Well, the first image is uh, indicative of Jesus' arrival. And, and so at the beginning of Matthew, we see a, a robust description of Jesus' arrival, and it helps us understand who he is and what he came to do. Uh, the second uh, instrument is, is a trumpet, a uh, trumpet. Declaring a message, and so, as we shift from his arrival we 'll move into what did he do? What did he say? what did he teach? what was jesus message? Uh, the third being the cross, and as the book moves following the life of Jesus, we are going to see that there 's just an enormous amount of tension and conflict between Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God and the human institutions of of power and religion that oppose him, culminating in the cross and then the crown uh, as Jesus proves to be victorious the ruling conquering king uh, with his resurrection so uh, we'll kind of use that those four images to work our way through the book of Matthew uh, open with me to chapter 1 if you have your bibles You recall last week we saw in the genealogy this snapshot of the entire gospel, the entire good news of Jesus, that being that it's a gift. In other words, it's not offered for sale, right? It's given. It's not something that we can purchase. It's something that we receive. The gospel is a gift. We saw also It's unstoppable in nature that God's work is going forward in spite of the things that we see in culture that may cause us to believe otherwise. And so we see uh, the Lord move kings and kingdoms to accomplish his work, and it's all happening under the radar, uh, culminating in Jesus the gospel is a gift. It is unstoppable. God's work is unstoppable. And third, last week, just that the gospel is for everyone. And we looked at Jesus' lineage and we saw that it's just marked by people that would be marginalized, looked down upon, left out in culture. It's filled with moral, gender, ethnic outsiders so that we would understand. The family tree of Jesus, the lineage, the royal line of Jesus, filled with these people that most would want to exclude. And it shows us the kind of people that Jesus came to save and lets us know that no matter where we come from, there is room for us in Jesus' family. And so that was just the genealogy, just the lineage of Jesus. And now this morning, Matthew 1, uh, 18 through Uh, the end of the chapter, and uh, I want us to see together that we're going to continue to learn about who Jesus is from his arrival and what he came to do. And it's kind of like, uh, for some of you in here have been married a long time. In fact, last week we announced that there was like four couples that had been married for 50 years, and we're celebrating 50-year anniversaries that week or month uh, or that season. Um, But Someone who's been married for 50 years knows so much more about their spouse than someone who's been married for three months or dating for two weeks or just had a great first date last week. Uh, and because you know so much more about that person, your capacity to love them is so much greater. And so I hope what happens today is we look more at Jesus' arrival uh, as we grow in our capacity to love him, to marvel at the lord's work on our behalf the thoughtfulness of how he sends jesus uh, to rescue us so matthew 1 let's start in verse 18 i want us to see as we get into the text matthew is going to focus uniquely on joseph's point of view of jesus arrival in other words God is going to invite, the Father is going to invite Joseph to play a significant part in Jesus' arrival, so we're going to see what does it look like when God invites you to partner with him in his work, and I think identify for us some misconceptions we have that at times keeps the Lord's work at distance uh, from us. So Matthew 1, let's read verses 18 through 21 together. We'll talk about Joseph a little bit, and then we'll get into the uh, arrival of Jesus, and we'll talk about the significance of this title that he's given, Emmanuel, God with us. Starting in verse 18, uh, I want us to see that God with us, means that he has done what is necessary to do all that he wants to do in us. Verse 18, Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, when she was engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, verse 19, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay. Joseph is described as a righteous man. Joseph just got the call from God up to the big leagues, okay? Joseph just got the call from God. God says to Joseph, Joseph, let's go. The time is now. I'm inviting you into what I'm doing. And Joseph hits the brakes, and it's his intention to put Mary away quietly, respectfully, by divorcing her. The angel comes and says, don't you dare. Let's go. Uh, And so I just want us to pause for a second and ask Um, A question that I would love for you to sit with this week. How are we, how am I, how are you, how are we doing responding to the Lord in the daily and weekly ebb and flow of life? Are we, are you, am I, are we partnering with him in his work? Scripture is clear that if we're followers of Christ, we have gifts that are given to us for the purpose of building up the body building up each other, not for us to hoard, to hold on to or to put on a shelf like a trophy and polish and say, check that out. That's a good one. That's a, one of the special gifts. Right? it, right? No, they're for the use of building up the body. Are you using those gifts to build up the body? Uh, at the end of Matthew, he's going to talk about this call on all followers of Christ to make disciples of all nations. It's not some followers of Christ making disciples of some nations, it's all followers of Christ, making disciples of all nations, where you work, where you live, your family, the family that you like, the family that you don't like, the family that you invite over, the family that you don't invite over. How are you doing partnering with God in his work? Some of you are married. The Bible is so clear about God's purpose for marriage, a a declaration, a painting, a snapshot, a movie that shows relationship between jesus and the church such that when those far from the lord see our marriages they want to know how is that possible where does that come from and we're able to point to jesus how are you doing pointing to the Lord in your marriage, giving yourself to his definition of what it means to love your spouse. I want us to ask these questions because we want to be used by the Lord. We want to be an asset, but most of us at some level have our hands up like this saying, uh, no, <laughs> no thanks. We have some misconceptions about what it looks like to be called by God into service, and some of those misconceptions keep us From being receptive having an open posture being ready and saying yes one of the misconceptions we see that Joseph here in the story of joseph that i think we have that would be fair to put on joseph too is we often have the misconception that what god wants to do in us will fit within our plans our schedule the things we're committed to and we just see here in in matthew one that God's invitation to Joseph to partner with him in this great work is a massive interruption to what Joseph was doing. Joseph is preparing to be married. Do you think Given the virtues that we read about with Mary and Joseph, that there's not two families and maybe even a whole community really excited about this union, that there's not friends and family and brothers and sisters really excited about this thing happening, that there's not two mothers who have been planning for maybe 10 years, maybe we can get Mary and maybe we can get Joseph and maybe they, they you know, they, I see the way he looks at her, I think maybe. Do you think maybe that that was happening and they were all excited about this? And here he finds out she's pregnant, which means, according to a significant amount of early rabbinic writing, that regardless of how she became pregnant, she cannot continue with the engagement. What an interruption. And so sometimes in our lives, we're so focused on our schedule and focused on our plan and something interrupts that. And we treat it like a nuisance or a fly to be swatted or an obstacle to be navigated. If I can just get around that and get back to where life is easy and I'm in the groove in between the white and the yellow line on the road, then everything will be better. And here, the interruption is not evidence that God's not in control. It's not evidence that God's trying to punish Joseph. The interruption is his invitation into his work. Can we have a posture? Or we might receive interruptions the same way. Not only do we have the misconception that God's work won't be an interruption in some way, we often have a misconception that it won't be inconvenient, that it will be safe, secure, comfortable, and convenient. Do you know that in Deuteronomy 22, the text is just crystal clear that if a woman who was engaged is found to be with child and she consented in conception that the biological father and the mother must both be killed if she did not consent then the uh, biological father must be killed either way the engagement can't continue i mean what an inconvenience I mean, can you imagine joseph as a righteous man thinking what i've i've done my part god why would you Inconvenience. Why would you make this so uncomfortable, God? You would never bring this level of discomfort or inconvenience into a, into the life of someone who's following you. Aren't you supposed to kind of make my path a little bit, a little bit smooth? And so we see in Joseph the inconvenience. It's not evidence that God is not in control or good. It's not evidence that He's disengaged or disinterested. The interruption, the inconvenience is God inviting Joseph into his work so often god 's invitation to us is going to feel like an inconvenience or to like an interruption now there 's a few more uh, uh, often a misconception we have is that we will feel equipped or ready for whatever God brings our way. Anyone ever felt equipped or ready for what God brought your way Thank you. Any, Anyone just said yes, God lined everything up for me. Silver platter, everything was just, you don't see that in the text, right? Joseph's ready to put her away, respectfully, quietly, guarding her name. I don't think Joseph feels ready. How about the misconception of believing that God's going to unfold his plan in front of us and give us a 10-step, five-year plan, step by step by step? Anyone ever got one of those? Joseph doesn't. Joseph is just told by the angel of the Lord, marry her. The child is from the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but that wouldn't help me. The child's from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'll just tell everyone the child's from the Holy Spirit, and they'll go, oh yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. He's going to have to get over his pride because he is going to be known around town as the man marrying the woman who has a child with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Who's going to believe that? There's no precedence for something like that. He's going to have to get over his pride. He's going to have to be committed to what the Lord has said, regardless of what makes sense to him, regardless of what those around him say about the situation and about him and about Mary and about his future son. And, And so we just see in this focus of Matthew on Joseph's perspective that the call to participate in God's work rarely looks like what we think it should but my goodness what a payoff here for joseph and and so i think one of the encouragements from us is to not be surprised when god's word or when his spirit interrupts uh, inconveniences causes us to maybe be find ourselves in a situation where we don't feel like we're well equipped or well prepared but that in that moment we might say yes rather than run Joseph's ready to run. The angel Lord comes and says, no, 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 no. You're going to miss this. Some of us are there right now. We're trying to run. And the angel of the Lord is saying, no, 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 no. no, You can't miss this. And we're shoving and pushing and running and jumping and trying to get out. The angel of the Lord is saying, no, 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 no. Not yet. Stay the course. Stay the course. Stay the course. What does it look like to follow Lord. What does it look like to participate in his work? A little bit different than what we think, but my goodness, the payoff is enormous. Um, So as we answer the question this morning, why Jesus? uh, Maybe that's a question that you've asked at one time. Maybe you've thought something like, why couldn't God just wave a magic spiritual wand? I mean, technically, he doesn't even need the wand. Why couldn't he just wave his hand and, and just have all people be saved? Wouldn't that make things easier? Uh, if some people are going to be saved, why couldn't he just wave his hand and have some people saved? He speaks the world. He speaks the all of creation into existence in six days, but then needs like 30-some years uh, for Jesus to come and to live and to walk. And it's not like they're the greatest 30 years. He's got to go through adolescence. Like, who wants to go back to adolescence? He goes through adolescence. He goes through all of those seasons. There's an enormous amount of suffering. There's an enormous amount of persecution. Uh, There's an enormous amount of difficulty. Why? And so, what I want us to do is go backwards to Psalms 106. I think Psalms 106 is just this incredibly cool chapter that paints a picture of the ebb and flow of humanity in our responsiveness or lack thereof to God, such that it helps us to see what we bring to the table and how God might look down at us and why he might be so inclined to send Jesus. Psalms 106, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. I'll tell you where I'm at so that we're not getting um, more lost than we likely will. But we'll start in verse 6 of Psalms 106. Uh, Read this chapter when you get a second. If you have time this week, go out to lunch by yourself, go to coffee by yourself, go outside before it rains and find a great spot just to sit, watch the sun come up or the sun go down. Uh, Read Psalms 106 and just give some thought to what that means for who you are and how God relates to you. Psalms 106, uh, in part, to answer this question, why Jesus? Uh, I'll start in verse 6 of Psalms 106. Verse 6 says this, both we and our fathers have sinned. The psalmist says both we and our fathers have sinned. We are guilty. They're guilty. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. We have not learned a thing from their example. Verse seven, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works and they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but instead rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. We're guilty. Our fathers were guilty. We didn't learn anything from them. When they were in Egypt, they totally forgot all the good things that you had done for them and rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And rebelled. Yet, verse 8, you, or he, saved them for his name's sake, that he, talking about the Lord, might make known his mighty power. And he rebuked the Red Sea, verse 9, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. In other words, we did nothing good, we made a mess of everything, yet, verse 8, he saved them for his name's sake. Verse 12, then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. All right, pat yourself on the back, Israelites. God rescued you from slavery, and you acknowledged that maybe he did something. They believed his words. They sang his praise. It lasts real long, all the way to verse 13, but they soon forgot his works and did not wait for his counsel, but they had a weird Bible word, wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. Translation of 13 and 14. He saved them. They believed for a moment. They had this momentary refocusing on the Lord and the moment the difficulty was removed the moment they were out of Egypt the moment there was no Pharaoh and army chasing them they hit the spiritual autopilot button and said I've got this God I'll call you when I need you as evidenced verse 13 they forgot all the good that he did for them they did not wait for his counsel I've got this God I don't need you it is amazing Spiritually, how much worse affluence, comfort, the perception of security is for our souls. And how much better for our souls, for our faith, is some level of difficulty and persecution. It says in verse 14, they give in to their cravings. They were slaves to their impulses. Does that at all sound like us? Forgetting his work, ungrateful for what he has done, being rescued time and time again. Uh, jumping down to verses 34 and 35. It says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. Background, he says, there's wicked nations all around you. Get rid of them or it will be your downfall. They're all around. Get rid of them. Stay away or it will be your downfall. Very much father to son, stay out of the street. There's cars. They're fast. They're bigger than you. Stay in the front lawn. Uh, of course, they're, they're not going to listen. Uh, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. And what the Lord said then is going to happen. Verse 35 Instead, but they mixed with the nations, and they learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, and they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. God says, there's wickedness over here. Please stay away. This is a highway. There's fast cars. Stay in the yard. They pick and choose which of his commands they're going to follow. This one doesn't make sense, God. I I think we'll just kind of pass over that. And they mix with the people, and it says it becomes a snare to them, and they become like the people, and all of the wickedness of the evil nations around them becomes their own wickedness. This is just the pattern of humanity over and over and over. You know, know, the Old, uh, Old Testament law is said to have about 613 rules, and, and so sometimes we're like, ah, 613, who, who can possibly do that? Well, it wasn't any better in the garden when there was only one. The Lord puts caution cones around these trees and says, just stay away from this, and we didn't do very well with that one either. So regardless if there's one or 613, we've never done well with following God's commands. We've never on our own been able to live good enough to be in his presence. We trip and fall as quickly as we can. Uh, I love verse 44. Probably my favorite word in this chapter. Uh, Psalms 106, 44, the very first word, says, Nevertheless, "Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. Uh, Two things that you would not imagine uh, the Lord might still be doing. uh, Looking upon them and listening. He looked upon their distress and he heard their cry for their sake. He loves them so much for their sake. Still cares about them so much for their sake. Loves them in spite of what they've done. It says for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Now, it does not say that he relented according to the sincerity of their confession. It does not say that he relented according to their successful, prolonged obedience. It says he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So when we step into Matthew 1 and we see Jesus back out for a minute and just try to get a glimpse of history from God's vantage point, Repeated efforts to draw his people to himself and their repeated failures. And then go straight to verse 44 and say, Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry for their sake. He remembered his covenant and relented. Enter Jesus. Matthew 1, starting in verse 21 through the rest of the chapter, we'll see Jesus came to save us from our sins the pattern of humanity is to fail at every step and to not be able to live good enough to be in the presence of God and so God sends Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves nevertheless verse 21 she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins he will do this they can't we've all seen that He will do this, they can't. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph goes and does exactly what the angel of the Lord has said. And Jesus is born. And so we could talk more about the obedience of Joseph, but we've kind of, I think we've we've um, beat that horse. Um, how about the introduction of Jesus and this enormous title, Emmanuel, God with us. And so when we think God with us, Uh, One of the things that that draws our attention to is that Jesus was not just a good preacher, not just a wise uh, prophet, not just a moral um, trendsetter, um, not just a powerful man. He was God with us. And, And so that causes us to consider his dual nature, that he was fully man and fully God. And so... What I want to do is just run briefly over some evidence that what the Bible says is that he was man and that he was God. Try to make sense of how that weaves together and then end with why that matters for us, why that's a really big deal, uh, to the point that Jesus was fully man. Consider the many references that you might be familiar with where Jesus got tired, like all of us do, where Jesus was hungry like all of us are getting or have been for about 20 minutes. Uh, He was thirsty. Uh, He rested. Remember when he's in the boat with his followers and the storm's going crazy? They're going nuts, and he's tired. He's probably preaching all day. He's exhausted, and he's asleep because Jesus got tired because he was fully man, and men and women get tired, and he was one, so he did. Uh, Hebrews 2:17 describes Jesus as being made like his brothers and I'm not talking about his his brothers by and Joseph but like humanity like men and women like creation made like us in every respect. Jesus is fully man and it dots the pages of scripture uh, where we see him um, behave in that way. Scripture is also clear that Jesus was fully God some of you have read uh, John 1 Uh, John 1 1 through 3 begins this way using the word uh, word or word of God in place of Jesus son of God I'll read it to you it says in the beginning was the word again word in your Bible will be a big W capital W referencing the son of God and the word was with God and the word was God always with God Fully God. Verse 2, And he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's talking about Jesus. Now, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the Bible is just crystal clear. Fully man, crystal clear Fully God. The question is, is why? Like, why does that matter? It kind of seems overly complicated, unnecessarily complicated and difficult to understand. Uh, and, and so uh, I want to read a short description that may be useful to some of you and, and might not be useful to some. If it's not, we'll try to explain it a little bit more um, so that we're all on the same page. This is from uh, 451, uh, a council that happened in the 5th century. Uh, Here's some bits and pieces of their definition of what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union, that union of fully God and fully man. It says, We acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, like us in all respects, apart from sin recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted, or as separated into two persons, but one and the same son, the only begotten of God. And so, um, what is the significance, uh, without change? Um, this is not like a yellow and blue make green kind of thing, you know, where where two things come together and you get one entirely new thing It's really not either, uh, of, of what it was, um. Jesus did not leave his divine nature uh, when he came, and and that's a really significant thing. Uh, He wasn't at times more God than man, or at times more man than God, uh, such that when he suffered, such that when he was persecuted, uh, we're to understand that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Indomitable uh, in nature, um, all-powerful, experienced the sting of each slap of those Roman soldiers, the puncturing of each one of those compressed thorns. It wasn't just Jesus as a man experiencing that. That was Jesus as fully man and fully God, which means at any moment he had the power to step in and stop what they were doing. At the moment he had the power to bring down angels from heaven to just wipe them all out. And he didn't really need the angels' help to do that. He could do that on his own. He could speak it. He could think it. There's a lot of different ways that, that Jesus can do those sorts of things. Um, but that he experienced all of that pain in his divine nature, with the power to make it stop, but he also experienced it as fully man because there was no change, both nature's present, which means he has experienced the worst in torment and pain and suffering um, that we can imagine that at the time could be done to the human body, and he did that for us um, two natures without change. Two natures without division. I think that's a significant thing, too. Sometimes I almost imagine Jesus, when he's doing his miracles, is like eh, 90% God and just 10% man at that time, and which explains why he could do so such cool things. Or, well, Jesus was tempted and he didn't sin. Well, maybe those are also moments where he was like 90% God, 10% man, and that's why he didn't sin, but for us, uh, we're hopeless. No, there's no division. There's no change uh, which means that when Jesus responds to temptation the way that he does, he's demonstrating to us what is possible with a life fully yielded to the Holy Spirit. He can become, he is a perfect example for us because he was fully man and can relate to what we go through, have been through himself, what we endure yet without sin, without division, without Change two natures, fully man, fully God, at the same time. So, why does this matter? Um, Well, first, Jesus being God-man fulfills a highly nuanced prophecy. If you have your Bibles, Isaiah 9:6 is the prophecy that mentions the birth of a child. I'll read it to you. Um, But I want you to see that with Jesus being fully man and fully God, the father calls his shot seven or eight hundred years earlier in Isaiah and then does exactly what he says he was going to do, even though at the time it would have been impossible to imagine any sort of fulfillment to this prophecy. And that's a big deal. Because there's a whole lot happening in the world around us that we don't understand and we don't get. And to us, it seems like how could God possibly do what he said he's going to do? And so when we see him call his shot and make good on it, it should give us confidence that everything that he has said will happen in the future. Jesus returning a final judgment of the living and the dead, a ruling and reigning for all of God's people for eternity. When we see him call his shot in the past and fulfill what was unimaginable at the time. It should give us confidence that everything that he said will happen in the future, everything that at present is possibly unimaginable to us will in fact happen just as he said it would. Uh, Isaiah 9, six says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of we often read that verse around Christmas time, but just consider the confusion that must have created as scholars as students of the written word of the law tried to understand what could God possibly have meant by this? What was he possibly up to, and yet we see this highly nuanced prophecy by the way there 's like three hundred or so what are called messianic prophecies that point to Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, Fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Second, Jesus having two natures, uh, not only is it a fulfillment of prophecy, it's also necessary and significant for saving us. And so um, imagine for a minute that Jesus is fully man, but not fully God. So that's kind of where we reside <laughs> fully man. Not fully God. Anybody in here a worthy sacrifice on behalf of all of humanity that's ever existed in the eyes of God the Father? Anyone in here think they can stand and, and, and take that bullet or that their life a, as a sacrifice would be worthy to God? Uh, no hands, right? N- none of us could fill that void. None of us earned the ability to sit in that chair or be nailed. To that cross. And so Jesus, as fully man and fully God, proves to be the only worthy sacrifice, the only worthy life sufficient for all of us. The fact that he's not just fully God, but also fully man, means he's actually one of us in the sense that all of God's attributes remain fully intact and actually magnified with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, because one from humanity must pay for the consequences, must pay for the sins of humanity. So if Jesus is not fully man, he doesn't have the right to sit in that chair, but because he's fully man, he is a sacrifice on our behalf, which means God's righteousness as one who must judge evil remains intact because he is judging evil, and he's not just passing judgment onto another and letting the rest of us off the hook. He is passing judgment on a representative of humanity for all humanity. So his Justness remains intact. His mercy remains intact. His grace remains intact. His holiness remains intact. None of us can do anything to possibly earn a spot in his presence. And so his holiness is satisfied with the perfect life of Jesus, fully God and fully man. It's a worthy sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, to save sins of which we could not do for ourselves. Jesus is fully man and fully God, fulfills highly nuanced prophecy that gives us confidence for God's future for us and for our world. Jesus having two natures is necessary for the saving and rescuing and salvation of men. Third, Jesus having two natures, fully man and fully God, is essential for him to be a high priest, a mediator for us. Uh, When you get a second... Open your Bibles to Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4. Such, just, these words just jump off the pages of Scripture pertaining to Jesus' nature as fully man and fully God. I'll read a couple of them from from Hebrews 2, starting in verse 17. Uh, Listen to the way the author of Hebrews describes Jesus, made like us in every respect. It says, therefore, verse 17 of Hebrews 2, therefore, he... Had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or covering for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he came and lived as a man, he is able to take. Uh, our weaknesses, he's able to empathize with our weaknesses, with our struggles, with uh, our difficulties, with our temptations, and he's able to advocate for us as a mediator to the Father in a way that is empathetic, and that's significant, and Hebrews 4 uh, spells out that significance, starting in verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in whom every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, here, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Can we be honest for a minute and say that sometimes we don't draw near to the throne of grace with confidence? Sometimes we draw near to the throne of grace reluctantly thinking that God has long since discarded us, but maybe it will work. Sometimes we Go to the Lord in shame because of our sin, because of our temptation. And the author of Hebrews says, no, Jesus understands our weakness, understands our frailty, understands our temptation. We can draw near with confidence that we will receive help in our time of need, not shame, that we will receive help in our time of need. It's not just theological jargon. It's not just nuanced things that people argue about at Bible college. Jesus, as fully man and fully God, proves to be the necessary and sufficient payment for our sins so that we can be reconciled to the Father. Because he is fully man and fully God, we can run through the throne of grace with confidence. If you're here this morning, and it has been a long time since you, with the Lord, have been able to run to the throne of grace with confidence, would you this morning consider confessing whatever is on your heart? Would you this morning consider that he stands ready to provide help in our time of weakness we can go to him not from him and then some of us are still here trying to make sense of our world on our own right the father sends the son because we can't do it on our own the father sends the son because humanity has tried for a couple thousand years and it hasn't worked, and it won't ever work. And so if you're here and you're trying to fix things by yourself, whether it be some aspect of your life or whether it be your standing before God, consider the life of Nicodemus, a well-studied, righteous man. And the Lord says, Jesus says to him, all that you know and all that you've done don't make you saved. You must be born again. If you're here this morning and you've never been born, Jesus tells him you need to believe in the Son of Man. That's never a decision that you've made. If there's any concern or sense of unsettledness in your heart about where you will spend eternity, are you in or are you out? Would you please share that with someone this morning? Come up. There'll be a prayer team up here afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about that. Jesus came, as Matthew 1 says, to take away the sins of the world. It is a gift is not offered for sale it is to be received it is not something we can purchase if you've never received that would you receive jesus this morning as the son of god on your behalf to make a covering for your sins so that once and for all we could be right with our father not because of what we can do what we might do or the sincerity of our confession But because of the love of the Father, our sin made Jesus necessary. His love made Jesus possible. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, uh, Sunday morning. A little bit of a dreary morning outside, and we ask, Lord, that You would shine Your light into the dark places of our hearts, Lord, that we might be responsive to Your voice. That as we learn more about Who You are and the thoughtfulness, the intentionality, Lord, with which You pursue us relentlessly, Lord, we're. We're grateful that you didn't give up on us. We're grateful that you keep pursuing. We're grateful that you keep chasing even when we say no or, or hands off or or leave me alone or I've got this. Lord, that just that must hurt your heart to hear. Thank you for continuing to pursue us. Lord, may we be people who hold loosely, recognizing that we have a standing before you because of Jesus, not because of what we've done. And so our entire life going forward, Lord, is to be marked by your work, and not ours, your righteousness, not ours. Lord, may that be freeing. May that be something that causes us to run to your throne, expecting to receive help in our time of need. Lord, fill us with a sense of who you are that it might overflow uh, with gratitude and grateful service. Lord, as you invite us, like Joseph, to partner in your work. Lord, make us ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.